Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 98, The Visconti Take Milan, Act 1. E non posso più accucciarmi e così ritorno su Okay, so Milan. 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 Now, I have a confession and a digression before we start. Up until some time ago, maybe even two or three years, maybe even last year, who knows, I had nothing but contempt for Milan. I think I defined it as a great pit of grey depression and would describe how, when I was going there every Friday for a whole winter for a training course, a sense of greyness would fall upon me as the train started to go through the suburbs of the city. Many Italians agree with me, especially those from the countryside. However, the Milanese and those who are not originally from there but have spent some time there love it. I always wondered what they saw in the place. But I must admit that now I've gone from being grudgingly appreciative to quite open to the idea of liking Milan, especially in the last few trips I have made there. It is the financial capital of Italy, the place where the stock market, Piazza Affari, is located. It is also one of the great fashion capitals of the world, along with Paris, New York and London although I actually find fashion mind-numbingly boring. If anything trendy or interesting new comes to Italy, it usually passes by Milan first. Despite the fact that the area is one of the most polluted in Europe, in recent years they have done some excellent work on green building, the ones with the roof gardens and hanging gardens and energy efficiency and so on. Also, you could say, in a certain sense, that I owe my own life to Milan. Indeed, my parents met in the city, and if they hadn't met, I would be just a figure of someone's imagination, if at all. Let me set the scene for you. Bear with me, it does have something to do with history and something to do with the Mafia. It's not just for my own self-glorification. The year is 1973. A young and attractive English girl in her 20s is convinced by her part Italian cousin to go to Italy together to be au pair girls in families in Milan. Just before leaving, the cousin falls in love, abandoning the adventure. The young girl decides to leave anyway on her own. With her grey eyes, blonde hair and light complexion, there is no way of mistaking her for an Italian. When she arrives, she discovers that the woman she is going to be working for is the mistress of a married man who has set her up in a nice flat in Milan with their two children. The man himself has just died. Had he lasted another year, Divorce would have been made legal in Italy and maybe he could have divorced his wife and married his mistress. Or maybe he wouldn't have 
and his death was a convenient way to avoid dealing with the issue. Anyway, the expectations for the job seemed to be more for a personal slave than an au pair girl, so our English girl leaves and goes to stay with a crazy Irish friend. That's good crazy, not psycho crazy. The girl starts to move around with the expats in Milan and is soon introduced to a young Italian man with a thing for English girls. With his dark brown eyes, jet black hair and dark complexion, there is no way of mistaking him for anything but Italian. Like the girl, he comes from a poor family. Like many families in the post-war period in Italy, his had tried their luck in Argentina, but had found none. He is starting a promising chemistry career. A piece of glass stuck under the skin of his right eye is testament to the fact that the chemistry experiments started early in his life and were not always that successful. Meanwhile, the Irish friend finds the English girl a job with a family where she was teaching English. This time it is a well-to-do family, a young couple with two children. The kids are quite nice, well looked after, and they attend an English school. Things look pretty good. Good enough to ignore some of the oddities. These particularly surround the maternal grandfather of the family, he is a distinguished, very polite man, but when he's around, they make sure the girl doesn't hear certain conversations. They make sure that her door, which gets easily stuck, is well closed. Once, she finds the mother hurriedly packing a suitcase and taking off, leaving the girl with the dog, and a short time later, the police come by, asking where the family is. She has started dating the young Italian man, although it has not been an easy conquest for him. When she tells him who she's working for, they both have a jaw-drop moment. The mother of the children is Maria Elisa Sindona. Her father, Michele, is a well-known banker of Sicilian origin with close ties to the Italian and American mafia, particularly to the Gambino family. He will end up being poisoned in prison with a coffee laced with cyanide. Among other crimes, he is held responsible for ordering the killing of Giorgio Ambrosoli, who had been assigned to look into the shady dealings of Sindona's bank. The young English girl and her Italian boyfriend in the end went to live together, much to the disappointment of his mother and then got married, and in 1977 had little old me. By that time, they had left Milan and were living in the Piedmont region in Novara. So, I suppose what I am trying to say is, Milan, I really apologise for bad-mouthing you. This long, long premise aside, we head back to the 13th and 14th century Milan. As anticipated, my friends, we are starting to have to make some difficult and painful choices, i.e. what to talk about and what to leave out. We will be talking about Milan for the importance it has today, as we mentioned, but also for its historical importance. 
Let's not forget that Milan had been a capital of the Roman Empire after Rome and before Ravenna, and at the height of the power of the Visconti, Milan would dominate in some form or another over 20 cities in Lombardy. We may also delve into some of those other cities, such as Ferrara, perhaps Rimini and Mantova, but we will not be able to touch upon all of them. Therefore, take Milan and also Florence, which we spoke about when we did the Dante episodes, as an example. For example, today we will talk about the rivalry between the Della Torre and Visconti families in Milan, but the same sort of thing could go for the Tornielli and Cavalazzi in Novara, the Avvocati and Tizzoni in Vercelli, the Coleoni and Suardi in Bergamo, the Vignali and Vistarini in Lodi, the Rusco and Vitani in Como, the Beccariati and Langasco in Pavia, and so on and so forth. Get the picture? Anyway, back to Milan. We spoke about Milan in the early Commune episodes, and in particular, we saw the adventures of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa in the 1160s and 1170s. Indeed, you will remember that Milan was perhaps the most prominent commune of the Northern League, which opposed and finally defeated Barbarossa in the Battle of Legnano. The Visconti family were already important at that time, with one of their family being nominated a consul. However, their real time to shine came when on the 22nd of July, 1262, Ottone Visconti was made Bishop of Milan. This was a move by the Pope at the time, Urban IV, to counter the growing power of the family that was coming to dominate the city, the Della Torre family. Just a reminder on why the Pope would not want anyone to get too powerful in Italy. You remember that, as well as seeing himself as the leader of all Christendom, he was the temporal ruler of the Papal States. This meant that any single power who grew too much anywhere in Italy would eventually look hungrily upon those Papal States sitting smack bang in the middle of the country, cutting off north from south. So, the solution this time round was nominating Ottone Visconti as Bishop of Milan. The Della Torre were having none of it, and Ottone didn't even get into the city. Not even when the Pope threw an anathema at Milan, that's like a combination of city excommunication and curse. They had meanwhile gone from Martino Della Torre to Filippo, and finally Napoleone, known as Napo, and extended some form of control over Como, Lodi, Novara, Vercelli, Bergamo, and Brescia. This control could mean, for example, the position of Podestà, Capitano del Popolo, and so on. Not absolute dominion over the cities, but some form of influence. Napo always tried to keep himself on the right side of becoming an outright sovereign. It all had to look as democratic as possible, and he did a pretty good job. But in the end, he slowly accumulated too much power and went a bit too far, accumulating enough enemies and exiled opposers to give Ottone Visconti enough support to weigh in. 
way in he did, and on the 21st of January 1277, 15 years after Ottone had been nominated bishop, the Visconti faction defeated the Della Torre at the Battle of Desio, thanks to a surprise attack. Napo was taken prisoner and later died in captivity. It was this particular bit of luck that brought Milan under the power of the Visconti, otherwise Napo could have simply regrouped and gotten fresh forces. So it was that at the end of the 1270s, Ottone Visconti finally managed to take up his position as bishop and started to place his family and supporters in positions of power. It was in 1288 that he concluded his masterpiece by having Matteo Visconti nominated Capitano del Popolo, Captain of the People. Now, of all the names I chuck at you in this episode, this might be the one you want to remember, because he was the biggie. Some historians even go as far as to call him Matteo Magno, Matthew the Great. Now, the assignment of the great title doesn't have very clear-cut criteria, but under him, Milan did reach its most widespread influence yet, and he was on centre stage for quite some time, with a sort of an extended sabbatical in the middle, as we will see. He must have been quite a looker and also quite strong, since legend would have it that he could break a horseshoe with his bare hands. He was not, however, all brawn and no brain, as he was a shrewd politician and a very pious man, also making sure that those around him did all their praying and confessing and weren't too naughty. As not naughty as you can be in late medieval Italian politics, that is. One thing he would have to deal with constantly, at least at the beginning of his dominion, was the continued presence of the Della Torre, who already in 1290 tried to get back into the city and were defeated. Also around that period, Matteo did something that would come back to bite him on the bottom, especially when the Pope would be looking for things to accuse him of. Indeed, 1291 was the year in which Acre fell to the Mameluk Turks, and there was talk of a new crusade to take it back. Matteo Visconti, knowing that sending able-bodied men off to the Holy Land would leave him in a weak position, did not allow anyone to leave. Meanwhile, he established Milanese control over Como and Novara and also added Alessandria and Monferrato to the deal. The early 90s also saw him being confirmed another five years as captain of the people and in 1294 he received international recognition from Holy Roman Emperor Adolf. So there was Matteo Visconti. He was managing to keep the Della Torre at bay. He was extending the political influence of Milan. He had international recognition. He was sitting pretty. Bob, or maybe Roberto, was his uncle. What could possibly go wrong? Well, as Docker Brown said to Marty McFly at the end of Back to the Future, it's not you, Matteo, it's your kids. It was fatherly love that brought a temporary downfall of the Visconti. 
Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, starting with the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Brian J, Selene, Chanel, Chris, David L, Dean V, Douglas, Elizabeth, Greg, Ignacio, Jeffrey, Old John in Milwaukee, Kevin, Marxist Leninist Sicilian, Neville, Paradise, Patrizia Kappa, Peter W, Rene R, Roberta D, Rodney N, the Question Master, Rudy F, Sam, Scott L, Shelby, and Stephen, and the tippy top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, Maxime, David A, and of course, Sen. Now, uh, I may have mentioned some of those as being existing Patreon supporters, but we have new supporters, which are Michael Wolf, welcome aboard, Douglas was among the list, but he's new, as well as Catherine C, thank you, Angela W, and Demetrio M. Thank you, thank you, one and all, and welcome aboard. I also need to thank Catherine in Warrenville for a lovely iTunes review. Thank you very much. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com and at the same URL, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and on Facebook or you could, if you're feeling generous, go to the support page, support us on Patreon and get access to additional content or via good old PayPal. In any case, thank you very much to everyone for listening and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.